what does it look like to do God's will? What does it look like to do God's will during the Christmas season with all the family coming into town? The in-laws, the outlaws, all of them coming together, right? To spend Christmas Day together. What does it look like to do God's will when we are so busy? When we're running here, we're buying gifts there, we're texting this person, we're voxing that person, we're talking on the phone, we're Snapchatting, we're Facebooking, we're Twittering, we're Googling. And not to mention, raising families, working, and if there's some extra time, we may eat and sleep as well. How do we do God's will in the busyness of life? In the chaos, in the struggles, in the sorrows, in the pain, even in the blessings of life. What does it look like to do God's will in your life? What does it look like to do God's will in my life? Well, this morning we're going to explore this very question. How do we do God's will? So let's open our Bibles to John 7, and we're going to start in verse 17 through 24. John 7, verses 17 through 24, and I've entitled this message, ironically, Doing the Will of God. So as we begin, let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We are just in awe of just being able to come and worship you in song, in prayer. In the preaching of your word, Father. Help us to live out your word in our daily lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our time of just hanging out, Father. Help us to be glorifying and living for you and doing your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to jump in right into the conversation that Jesus is having with a crowd of people at the Feast of Booze. It was a Jewish festival that was ordained by God, and Casey talked about it in detail last week, so I'm not going to. We're going to just jump right in into verse 17, where Jesus says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus says those who are doing God's will would be able to distinguish that Jesus' teachings were from God. In other words, those who truly are God's genuine followers would recognize that Christ was also from God. The question is how? What specifically let those who follow God know that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah? I mean, did Jesus have some sort of secret handshake? Or did Jesus look a certain way? Or did Jesus have to be a dynamic speaker? Or did the people in the crowd all of a sudden get a warm, fuzzy feeling in their stomach and recognize, oh yeah, that's, he's from God? How did they know? We already know from last week message that the Holy Spirit revealed this knowledge to some of those in the crowd. But my question is, what means did the Holy Spirit use to prove that Jesus was from God? Let's reread our passage again. Verse 17 says, if anyone's will 
is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus says that you will know that I am from God by what I say, by what I teach. In other words, the people would be able to discern that Christ was from God because of what he said, what he taught them. This word here in verse 17 for teaching can also be translated as doctrine. So those doing God's will would have deciphered who Jesus was by the content of his message. The doctrines that he was espousing, teaching to the crowd. So we can say here that knowing Jesus' teaching is really important. Knowing Christian doctrine is paramount as a believer in Christ Jesus. Which is ironic because we hear a different message being espoused by many evangelicals. We hear sentiments like, doctrine justified, so let's just focus on Jesus. Or we hear people say things like, it's not about religion or following Christian teachings. It's just about a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the problem is without Christian doctrine, we don't even know who Christ really is. Amen? How can we say we have a relationship with Christ when we don't even know who he is? How can we say we love Christ when we don't even actually know what he says? Jesus said this, if you love me, you will follow, you will obey my commandments. Christ said our love for him is revealed in our action to obey him. And we have to know what he tells us to be able to actually obey him, right? The question is, where do we learn to follow Christ? Where do we learn the teachings of Christ? My children know how to throw me off wherever I'm at. Okay, guys, let's now listen, okay? Point number one. We do the will of God by abiding in God's word. Good call. We do the will of God by abiding in God's word. When we look up the word here for abiding... You get words like enduring, everlasting, eternal, unending, constant, continual, permanent. We get a picture of someone who is saturated, they're soaked, they're immersed, they're abiding in God's word. They are the type of person who quotes scripture, who reads scripture, who prays the scriptures, who sing the scriptures, who meditates on the scriptures, who study the scriptures, who wrestle in the scriptures, who find hope in the scriptures, who ultimately live their lives in the scriptures. They filter their life through the word of God. Scripture becomes the lens that guides their thinking and their actions. The question is, what is so special about God's Word? I mean, how is God's Word really different than all other books? Well, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Hebrews tells us that God's word penetrates the deepest part of us. It pierces the heart. It challenges our motives. It reveals our sin to us. It convicts us. It straightens out our wrong thinking. And it gives us hope. God's word is God literally speaking to us. It would be like God sitting across from us on a table talking to us about our life and what we should be doing with it. The question is why? Why does God's word have so much power? Well, Ephesians 6.17 tells us. It says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. In other words, scripture, God's word is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to work inside of us, to change us, to transform us from the inside out. We no longer have our own opinions, our own counsel, our own wise and wonderful sayings any longer. But now our decisions, our counsel, our actions, our lives flow from what God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says. Amen? It's sort of like my two-year-old who is always talking about the cat in the hat. My wife has read a few Dr. Seuss books to him, and now he is totally hooked. He will talk about the cat and hat morning, noon, and night. If I asked him, I'm afraid to ask him this question, but if I asked him, whose birthday do we celebrate at Christmas? I'm sad to admit that I think he would probably say the cat in the hat. I mean, we could be in a store. And someone comes up and starts talking to my two-year-old, and by the end of the conversation, they're talking about the cat in the hat. I'm not sure if you can see that my son is obsessed with cat in the hat. It just flows right out of him all the time. And similarly, when we abide in Christ, then God's word will also pour out of us. We become like a glass of water overflowing. It can't stay inside of us. When we're talking to our spouse, talking to our children, talking to a neighbor, a co-worker, the strangers we run into, our conversation should naturally get back to God's Word. I wonder if we've experienced this type of passion for the Word of God. Does God's Word naturally just come into your conversations? I know many people who say they love Christ, and yet... They are always talking about things like sports. They can tell you every player on each team. They can tell you what each player is doing from day to day. They can tell you who won this World Series, who won the Super Bowl, who won the World Cup. And yet, I ask these same people about Christ or about God's Word, and they almost become silent. They don't have a lot to say any longer. They usually hesitate and say things like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I I go to church, or yeah, I try to be a good person, but my faith is personal, so I don't really feel comfortable talking about it with other people. And yet, many of these same people who can talk to me to ad nauseum about athletics, or passionately talk to me about the right styles to wear, or they can tell me with excitement about the right movies to watch, or what restaurants to go to, and yet it seems the passion, the excitement, the zeal that had been helping them to tell me everything about their sports, or their hobbies, or their job, or whatever they're doing leaves 
when they talk about God's word, when they talk about Christ. The truth of the matter is, what we care about, we talk about. What we love, we live for. What we live for, we practice. What we practice, we share with other people. How are we living for Christ this morning? Are we growing, maturing in God's word? Let's get back to our main text, and now we're in John 7. I'm going to reread verse 17 and move on to verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus says that the one who speaks on his own, he is his own authority and he's trying to lift himself up, make himself known, glorify himself. But the one who seeks the glory of God has pure motives. He lives for the Father. That's why Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What a shocking statement. The sinless Son of God could do nothing on his own, he said. He submitted himself to the Father wholly, and he, he did only what the Father told him to say and do. Jesus came not to glorify himself, but his purpose was to glorify and honor the Father. I ask us this morning, what is our purpose? What are we living for? Christ said his purpose was to glorify the Father. I mean, we have many believers searching for purpose, right? Looking for meaning, desperate to find fulfillment. They pray, they beg for God to show them what they are here on earth for, right? They fast, they look for signs to figure out what their purpose is. And all the while, God's word from beginning to end tells us what we are here for, what our purpose is. 1 Corinthians 10.31, we've said it many times here. Paul says, whether you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God, right? God's word is clear that our purpose, the goal of our lives is to live for God's glory, which leads to point number two. We do the will of God by living for God's glory instead of our own. Point number two says we do the will of God by living for God's glory instead of our own. I must admit, this idea shocked me when I first heard that I was here for God's glory. I thought being a Christian meant God was going to fulfill all my dreams and expectations. I thought God was going to help my life be successful. I thought God was going to give me my best life now. In a sense, I looked at God sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus since we're on Christmas who was blessing me with whatever gift I wanted in whatever moment I asked him for. But I must say this idea that God was here to serve me didn't originate with me. It started in the beginning of mankind. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to eat the forbidden fruit, right? Satan said to Eve, For God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was Satan saying? What was his temptation to Eve? Satan was saying this. Listen carefully here. He, said, he was saying this. If you eat the fruit, you will be God. Instead of living for God, you can now be your own God. You can live how you want. You can make your own decisions, autonomous from God, and follow your own ways instead of God's. I mean, we can see the same spirit in our children as well. We can see their selfish and rebellious spirits from a very early age. It often is seen, it often begins when a parent says, don't touch that, right? These magic words naturally just flow and just draw our children back to whatever that is. It may be a plug, it may be a cord, it may be keys. Hopefully it's not a sharp object, but it could be a sharp object. But when it becomes off limits, all of a sudden it becomes the most popular item in the home, the most popular toy in the house. I mean, our children can go from sweet angel to little monster in seconds, right? I sometimes wonder, whose children are we raising? And then I look in the mirror and I realize, yes, they're just like their daddy. They want their independence. They want to go their own way. The question is, where did I get such bad traits? And of course, the answer goes back to the curse, the fall. The sinful struggle with self is now a part of all of our DNA. We want to live for ourselves instead of God. We want to live for our own glory instead of God's glory. And this really becomes evident when we are inconvenienced. For example, I could be in a grocery store with my boys, and I decide to go to the fast lane because I only have a couple of items to buy, and I'm sort of in a rush. But I notice the person ahead of me has like 30 items in their, in their, in their grocery cart, and I think to myself, we're going to be here all day. But hopefully the cashier will set this person straight, of course. I mean, she can't be in the fast lane with 30 items. But to my surprise, the cashier says nothing. Nothing at all. So I go to plan B. Which means I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands, of course. <laughs> so I ask my five-year-old Luke, what does a sign say above our lane, Luke? And I know he can't read. So I read it for him out loud, a little louder than usual. And it says, fast lane, 10 items or less. And he says, Daddy, what does that mean? And I say, just a little louder, if you're going to be in this lane, you have to have 10 items or less, son. And if you have any more than 10 items, you have to go to another lane, obviously. And Luke counts our items, and he says, one, two, Three. And I said, see, we have three items. We can stay in this lane, right, son? And then I somewhat be get into my preaching voice, and I, and I start teaching him in front of this other person, of course. And I start talking about how important it is to follow rules. I mean, it shows integrity. It means we're respecting other people. It shows that we care for other people. And, you know, breaking rules lead to, leads to becoming a criminal. We don't want to be a criminal, <laughs> Right? My point is, 
this story could be played out in many different scenarios. It could be a slow line. It could be a slow driver. It could be a slow internet connection. And we become so easily frustrated, so impatient, so easily annoyed over nothing. And yet in those moments, it seems like everything. It seems so important, doesn't it? I mean, I have important things to attend to. I don't have time for slow people. I mean, everything should go the way I want it to go. Life should function the way that suits me. I can't be slowed down by people who aren't seeing the importance of my time, my decisions, my thinking, my actions, my life, right? For my benefit, lines should, at all stores should run really efficiently all the time. People should always drive the way I want them to, and the internet should always move at warp speed, amen? I want or I need, or I expect, or I desire everything, because everything should be to please me. I am the emperor of my own life. I am the king of my own castle. Um, but when I think this way, but when I think this way, I'm not glorifying God. I'm focused on glorifying myself. When we are being inconvenienced, it's a great place to be because it reveals whose glory I am living for. It reveals our hearts, our selfishness, our bad attitudes. It allows us to see what's inside of us. And I will be honest with you, usually when we see what's inside of us, it's not a pretty sight. The sin that lays dormant in our hearts comes out when we are inconvenienced. Self-glory rears its ugly head. 2 Timothy 3 says that in the end times, people will be lovers of self. When we live for self, it reveals that we are great lovers of self. And this love in scripture is not referring to a romantic love or a good feeling for self. It's not saying that you will always feel good about yourself or think positive or highly about yourself. Biblical love, hear this, biblical love is always talking about what we give our attention to, what we focus on, who are we thinking about from moment to moment. That's why Jesus says love God and others the way we love ourselves. He assumes we already love ourselves. Jesus is saying the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our own little families, the way we focus on ourselves, the way we think about our own life, Jesus says focus on God and others that very same way. In other words, think less of self and more on God and others. Are we glorifying God or are we glorifying ourselves this morning? Who are we loving? Are we loving God or are we loving self? We have to remember love here is talking about what we focus on from day to day. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which includes standing in long lines, driving behind slow drivers, parenting little monsters, I mean little angels, do it all. Do it all for the glory of God. Let's get back to our passage, and we're in John 7, 19. John 7, 19. And Jesus says this, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Let me read that again so we can sort of think through what he's saying here. 
Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus turns to the group, especially the religious leaders, and says, you follow the law, which is the Old Testament, and yet you yourselves don't live up to it, right? Then Christ asks a question that seems at first glance that it really is out of place. Why would Jesus go from saying they aren't following the very law that they teach to why do you want to kill me? Jesus' point is that the religious leaders didn't keep the law themselves, and yet they're trying to kill Christ because they think he's breaking the law. The hypocrisy was obvious. The Jewish leaders had one standard for themselves and yet had a different standard, a different expectation for others to live by. Paul explains the same hypocrisy in Romans 2, 21 through 24, where he says this, You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, you think you're holy and right as you judge others, but let me ask, do you judge yourself because you condemn those who steal, but do you steal too? The religious leaders of Paul and Jesus' day didn't see themselves. They were blind. They were drunk on pride and living for themselves, which leads to point number three. We do the will of God by thinking correctly about ourselves. Point number three says we do the will of God by thinking correctly about ourselves. We need to have a proper, accurate, right view of ourselves. We can praise God where he is transforming and changing us, right? But we can also be realistic about where we still need to change, where we still need to grow, right? Instead of being in awe of ourselves, we are in awe of Christ, We recognize that our sin has tainted us from head to toe, and we now see that the only reason we are washed clean is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? But even as believers, we see the continual battles we have with sin. We see the lack of love we still have for others. We see the lack of thankfulness we have towards God. We see the enslavement to sinful struggles like fear, Worry, lust, unforgiveness, anger, anxiety. We see in general that we aren't living for God's glory. Instead, we often are living for our own glory. We see that we're often more focused on the fear of man than the fear of God. We are more motivated to please man than to please God. Sin is still alive and well in us. It's not that we're okay with it either because Scripture tells us to walk daily, to live a life of repentance, right? But we still see the darkness that routinely comes out of our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said this. Listen closely to this quote. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. This is Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. Brothers and sisters, we aren't as good or as innocent as we think we are. If God revealed all our sin to us at once, we would surely be overwhelmed to the point of death. 
But God lovingly and graciously continues to pull down one layer upon layer of our sinfulness. And with every layer is met with his sovereign grace, with his sovereign love, with his sovereign mercy. It causes us to see Christ in his rightful position as we see ourselves in our rightfully low position. As we see ourselves clear, we begin to have a big, a high, a right, a lofty, an accurate view of Christ. Amen? Our prayers sound more like Paul the Apostles in in Romans 11, when he says this, Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For him, for him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What a picture of our God. Recognizing that all things, including us, are made for him, by him, and to him. Amen? Just the fact that God, the Father, continues to be patient with people like us should humble us. It should cause us to fall on our knees in praise and honor and glory to our sovereign king. Do we have a right view of ourselves this morning? Does our weakness, our brokenness, yes, our sinfulness, draw us closer to Christ? Is our attitude like the apostle Paul who said he was worst, he was foremost, he was chief of sinners? Are we the worst sinner in our marriage this morning? Are we willing to face reality that we are often selfish, that we are often reactive, that we are often prideful, that we are often impatient with our spouse, with our children, and with the loved ones that are in our lives? We must remember that the worst of sinners receives an abundance of grace. Christ didn't come to heal the well. He came to heal the sick, right? But let's go back to our passages here. because I, I know we want to leave. We don't want to be here for four hours. So let's get back and we're going to skip down to verses 23 and 24 of chapter 7. John 7, 23 and 24. Jesus is still speaking to the crowd. And he says this, Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So Jesus was saying, stop looking at the surface, mere appearances. You circumcise on the Sabbath, and that's deemed lawful, and yet you get angry with me because I healed someone on the Sabbath? Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew that the religious leaders weren't interested in doing the will of God. They were controlled by serving themselves instead of God. I often watch the behaviors of the Pharisees and how they treated Christ, and I wonder, what was the matter with them? What was the matter with these people? How could they be so blind, so self-oriented? I mean, they had Christ in their midst. He was with them. He taught them, and yet they decide to reject him? And yet, if I think about myself, I see that same Pharisee within me. I often want to use God more than love God. 
I often read God's word, pray, try to be a good person. And sometimes it's because I want my own glory more than God's glory. I often see in myself a man who is more interested in seeking the praise of men than the praise of God. I often see in myself a man who runs to the judgment of others while often giving myself a free pass. I wonder if we can relate to the people Jesus was talking to this morning. Are we able to see their humanity, their blindness, and see our humanity, our sinfulness within the group he's talking to? Can we see in ourselves the hypocrisy, the bent to be self-oriented, the desire to glorify ourselves this morning? If we summed up the Pharisees, We would describe them as takers. They wanted more and more. They lived for self. They had a passion for self. They loved themselves. But scripture tells us to love others the way we love ourselves, right? Which leads to point number four. We do the will of God by giving our best to others. Point number four says we do the will of God by giving our best to others. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God gave us his best. He gave his perfect son for us. And now we are called to do the same. Live our lives for Christ. Love God and others the same way we have been so deeply loved. Paul said it best when he told the Philippians to put others' interest above your own. It literally means to lift up others, love others, honor others, respect others, serve others better than we live For ourselves. Wow. Let me ask us this morning. What ways can we learn to put others above ourselves? What are ways that we can do that? Maybe it starts by just breaking out of our regular routine of life. And going and serving someone who really needs some help. Or maybe it's giving to someone something you really wanted. Maybe you've been shopping for a watch for a while and instead of buying it for yourself, you buy that very same watch that you really want and give it to somebody else. Or maybe it's just sitting down with a friend or a family member and really making their life your main interest. You decide to take time to ask them lots of questions and begin to be a friend or a person who really takes interest in other people instead of yourself. How we all need to work on putting others above ourselves. Well, in conclusion... I asked my children what Christmas was all about, and they responded quite, they used some wisdom when they answered me. They said, Daddy, it's about baby Jesus, but Daddy, it's also, we don't want to forget about presents either. How ironic, my children thinking about Christ and about themselves simultaneously. Can we relate to that this morning? Can we see Christ and yet see the pull to do our own will? Do we recognize the battle going on in our hearts between the flesh, and the spirit. To do the will of God this Christmas means we live in God's word. To do the will of God this Christmas, we live for God's glory instead of our own. To do the will of God for Christmas means we have a correct view of ourselves. We realize that we are worse than we ever thought we were, and Christ is much greater than we ever thought him to be. Finally, to do the will of God this Christmas means we give our best to others, not because they deserve it or because we owe them, but because Christ is our life and we want to glorify him. May we as a church 
do the will of God because we love Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We recognize, Father, as we look to your word that we fail in so many areas, Father. Help us not to be overwhelmed by them. Help us to turn all the more to you and repent for our sin, Father, for the struggles we have in the flesh. Help us to draw near to you, being empowered by your spirit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the season as we think about your son coming to earth, coming to save people like us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, your continued patience with us. May we, this season, share the love of Christ and do your will. In Christ's name, amen.